Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Seems Like Diet Culture podcast. As always, I am so grateful to have you here, and if this is your first time, welcome. My name is Mallory Page. I am a registered dietitian, and I am the host of this podcast, which I created because I wanted a space to be able to discuss nutrition, wellness, exercise, recovery, and so much more in a non-diet way because so much of what we see out there is super diet culture oriented. And I want you to have a different perspective as you try to build your mindsets around these things or decide how you want to engage with something. Now, one of the things that I love to do for this podcast is cover anything that's going on currently within the news cycle in these areas. And in the last week, there has been a topic that has absolutely blown up, and that is aspartame. More specifically, does aspartame cause cancer? Now, this is not the first time that we have talked about aspartame. You've probably seen it on social media and the media in general. It's pretty hard to avoid the information completely. And so when you have this information coming at you from all sides, it can be pretty easy to get lost in it or to feel confused about what it actually means, what to listen to, and all of that. You know, what is the pseudoscience? What is the actual science? And what are the regulatory bodies saying? But also, are these being interpreted um, incorrectly? So... That's exactly why today we are going to walk through the details about aspartame and I'm going to share what you need to know about it so that you don't feel like you have to be just so nervous about how to interact with it in the day today. So let's first talk about how the heck did we get ourselves into this mess and start with the drama. So Although there has been recent drama that we'll get into more later around the WHO's recent recommendations, and that is not (laughs) the WHO's as in the band, it's the World Health Organization, there has actually been drama surrounding aspartame for years and years, all the way back to 1965, so almost 60 years ago. Now, I'm not going to bore you with the entire 60-year history of aspartame, but I am going to take a moment to explain what it is and where it came from. So aspartame is a sweetener that was introduced by James M. Shatler to replace sucrose. That's also known as table sugar or granulated sugar. That's the type of stuff that you would buy at the store and it comes in a paper bag. You know what I'm talking about. Now, James M. Shatler was an American chemist and researcher who actually discovered aspartame on accident and from poor safety practices. He was looking to create an anti-ulcer drug in his lab when he went to lick his finger to pick up a piece of paper. Side note, do not ever lick anything in a chemistry lab. That is very unsafe. And he noticed when he licked his finger that it tasted sweet, and he was able to trace the sweet substance back to a beaker full of aspartic acid and phenylalanine. These are two naturally occurring amino acids. And he studied the mixture further. He found out he found out that adding methanol, which is a simple alcohol found in fruits and vegetables, seemed to be an important part of the sweetener, and thus aspartame was born. I know that that story seems too 
too wild to be real, but I swear you can look it up and you will find the same thing that I just shared. So aspartame is 180 to 200 times sweeter than sucrose, which is extremely significant. So you could take the small amount of aspartame and do 200 times that to get the same sweetness if using table sugar. It is a non-nutritive sweetener, which means that it contains zero or negligible, negligible amount of calories or carbohydrates. And these two things are the primary attractiveness of aspartame because you can essentially use a very small amount of aspartame without increasing the calorie or sugar content of whatever you are trying to sweeten. So when aspartame originally came out, the main interest of it was to help in reducing obesity rates. I want to make note of the fact that I do not agree with or follow the classifications for obesity based off BMI. I am just using that in a more clinical sense of how they originally designated the use of aspartame. And they also thought for developing countries that it could be very helpful for those struggling with diabetes. So if we fast forward 50 years, the aspartame drama of today started on July 14th of 2023. The International Agency of Research on Cancer, also known as the IARC, and the World Health Organization, also known as the WHO, classified aspartame as a group 2B carcinogen. So a group 2B carcinogen is labeled as a possibly carcinogenic to humans in the IARC monographs on the identification of carcinogenic hazards to humans. I know that's very confusing jargon. But to simplify this, we're going to actually look to the preamble of the IARC monographs, which was last amended in January of 2019, because they explain what it means to be classified as a group 2B carcinogen. So this decision is based on only one of the following. Number one is limited evidence of carcinogenicity in humans. Number two is sufficient evidence of carcinogenicity in animals. Or number three is strong mechanistic evidence in experimental systems. One thing to note about the classification system is that it does not account for dosages or route of exposure when classifying substances. The classification system is not intended to rank a substance as how likely it is that you are to develop cancer from the substance or even the level of risk, but rather is classifying substances based on what type of research exists. In the case of aspartame, the decision that they made is based on limited evidence in humans. So just keep that in mind when we're even sharing about the research around aspartame and even the stuff that people are sharing to either either back up or to refute the claims that have been made. I do want to talk quickly about the four categories of carcinogens as well. We've already talked about group 2B, which is what aspartame was put into, but there are other ones that we have not discussed. Group one is a carcinogen to humans, or it's carcinogenic to humans. 
Group 2A is probably carcinogenic to humans. Group 2B is possibly carcinogenic to humans. And then Group 3 is not classifiable as to its carcinogenicity. Oh, I definitely said it wrong that time. I've been practicing that word, if you're wondering. It's definitely a tongue twister for me. <laughs> but it's not classified in how much of a carcinogen it is to humans. So you may be wondering, as I shared about aspartame, you know, where do other things fit on this carcinogen list? Well, as a frame of reference, aloe vera, pickled vegetables, kava, carpentry, dry cleaning as an occupation, and car exhaust are also proud title owners of the group 2B carcinogen along with aspartame. Now, coffee, chlorinated drinking water, jet fuel, hepatitis D, they all fall within group 3. So as I'm reading through that, you're probably already a little bit curious as to the dissonance between <laughs> these classifications and what goes under them. But to take this further, group 2A, which is probably carcinogenic to humans, includes consumption of red meat and drinking very hot beverages above 65 degrees Celsius or 149 degrees Fahrenheit. Yes, you heard that right. Group one includes alcoholic beverages, working as a firefighter, and estrogen, progesterone, combining oral contraceptive pills. And there are in total about 1,000 different substances that can be classified in one of these four IARC groups. Now, as I read through the different things that fall within these categories, I am totally cherry picking which substances that I am sharing for comedic effect, for explanation of the extremity that can occur here, which is also a good thing to keep in mind because how easy is it for someone to just cherry pick and either fear monger and still fear or just twist the narrative as they want? I mean, I was doing it just there in the sense of trying to show you the discrepancy, but remember how easily other people can be doing this. So now that you know more about this classification system and the criteria for the classification system, we can circle back to the drama at hand. So the World Health Organization released a statement and it said, the IARC classified aspartame as possibly carcinogenic to humans, group 2B, on the basis of limited evidence for cancer in humans, especially for hepatocellular carcinoma, which is a type of liver cancer, if you're wondering. There was also limited evidence for cancer in experimental animal and limited evidence related to the possible mechanisms for causing cancer. So they're essentially saying that the main thing that the IRC used was this evidence that potentially cancer could be caused in humans with aspartame. But they're mentioning that there were other areas where we can see that there are connections according to what their research is. Now, I think there's a few really important things to talk through and debunk here. Number one, the animal experience experiments. So animal experiments are usually done on rats. And it's important to note this because humans have not been found to have a lot of similarities 
two rats. And their body sizes and body weights are so much less than a human. So the dosing that they're using for rats is extremely different than what it would ever be for humans. And this will come into play more with some of the recommendations that the WHO has shared. But just remember that just because something is shown in animals, it doesn't mean that it applies to humans for many reasons because we're not, we're not a rat. And this can be seen in stuff like cats and dogs. There are things that cats and dogs can't eat. I always think of grapes, for example, you know, that dogs can't eat or chocolate. And humans are totally fine eating those. So, you know, that's just the thing that we need to keep in mind is that we can't just do something to an animal and then all of a sudden say that's what it means in humans. Now, this mechanism for potentially causing cancer is supposedly coming from one of the byproducts that happens from metabolizing aspartame. I could read you the whole proposed mechanism, but it is quite confusing. In short, it essentially shares that when you metabolize aspartame, you can have this substance that is released, both methanol, aspartic acid, and phenylalanine, and these metabolites can, in high doses, be harmful, potentially, The main one that they pinpoint is methanol, which, just to give you perspective, only 10% of the released metabolites are methanol. Aspartic acid is 40% and phenylalanine is 50%. But this methanol is first oxidized in the liver and that forms formaldehyde and then this goes into formic acid. And there is some research that suggests that methanol can be harmful to the liver and therefore that is one of the pathways that they utilize to state that they believe that aspartame is harmful. But what's important to note is that you would have to be eating around 600 milligrams of aspartame to even be exposed to 60 milligrams of formaldehyde because it's so small, and that is quite an insignificant amount of formaldehyde. And just wait until we talk about the amounts of aspartame that you can ingest, and even more realistically, how much aspartame is in things that you may ingest. Now, another thing that I want to bring up with the formaldehyde is that lots of other foods have formaldehyde as a metabolic byproduct. Apples, bananas, pears, spinach, carrots, beef, poultry, fish, coffee beans, but you don't hear people talking about the risk factors of breaking down the formaldehyde in a banana, so it has to lead us to questioning why it is that this is being brought up specifically for this product but not for others. Now, in terms of the human evidence that they say is limited in supporting their classification in group 2P, 2B for aspartame, there's a lot of debate on where they really got this. 
There have been 72 different research articles that have explored aspartame in relation to cancer, and none of them have come across with strong associations between the two things. So people wonder where they really feel like they got the basis to even say that there is limited research in human studies because the studies that people have analyzed have only pointed to it being non-conclusive. Now, to really drive this point home, the Joint Expert Committee on Food Additives actually chimed in after this new classification came about, and they personally said that they've concluded that the data evaluated indicated no sufficient reason to change the previously established acceptable daily intake, which is the ADI, of 0 to 40 milligrams slash kilogram body weight for aspartame. And the committee therefore reaffirmed that it is safe for a person to consume this within the limit each day. So, for example, if you're wondering how this looks, a can of diet soft drink or soda typically contains between 200 and 300 milligrams of aspartame, and an adult weighing 70 kilograms would need to consume more than 9 to 14 cans per day to exceed the acceptable daily intake, assuming there was no other intake from food sources. And I think we need to really think about that and conceptualize what that would look like. Even on the lower end of the spectrum at nine cans of Diet Coke, most people realistically are not having that much diet soda in a day and especially not doing so for months or days or years on end. I also think if we generally take into account the idea of extremes in any area of life, but specifically with nutrition, we generally know that extremes are not ideal. So for example, you can drink too much water. You can have too many vegetables. You can have too much of anything. So when we're gravitating towards a really high end of any one type of substance, it typically isn't the most ideal, and we can see that pretty consistently throughout nutrition in general. So, with that being said, you can see that these classifications were kind of thrown out there without really any awareness or without much thought about how they could potentially be taken because they put out this label and the who backed this classification and they didn't really share anything about dosing. They didn't really share anything about logistically what this looks like and what you should be taking away. And if you look at the summary of even the meeting in which they made this classification, the very people who categorized aspartame as a group 2B carcinogen agreed that there was no real threat or concern around it. This was one of the statements from the public summary and conclusion of the Joint FAO slash WHO Expert Committee on Food Additives. It says, The committee concluded that there was no concern for genotoxicity of oral exposure to aspartame. The committee evaluated data from 12 oral carcinogenicity studies on aspartame and identified deficiencies with all of them, which 
explains exactly what we were just talking about, that there was no one study that they looked at or article that could claim or back these claims around aspartame. There was another statement that said, a consistent association between aspartame consumption and a specific cancer type was not observed. All studies have limitations with respect to their assessment of exposure and, in many studies, particularly with respect to aspartame versus intense sweeteners in general. Reverse casualty, chance, bias, and confounding by socioeconomic or lifestyle factors or consumption of other dietary dietary components cannot be ruled out. Overall, the committee concluded that the evidence of an association between aspartame consumption and cancer in humans is not convincing. You can even find this information. I will link the article so that you can look through it because this is public summary of the meeting. Now, I know some of you guys may be thinking to yourself, well, they just don't have enough research now, but it's only a matter of time before that research comes out. And so to talk about this point, I think it's good to circle back to the start of the podcast. Aspartame has been around for 58 years, which is quite a long time. And people have been super sketched out about aspartame for pretty much all of those 58 years. And that means for the past 58 years, people have been conducting studies similarly to the ones we just discussed, trying to figure out if aspartame is unsafe. And yet there still simply is not enough data to support it. And that's not to mention that aspartame is the most studied food additive according to the FDA, in terms of human food supply. The FDA has reviewed over 100 studies on aspartame, and FDA scientists do not have a safety concern when aspartame is used under the approved conditions. The sweetener is also approved in many countries. Regulatory and scientific authorities, such as Health Canada, European Food Safety, and more have evaluated aspartame and also considered it safe at the current permitted levels. I feel like with all of this information, it can still leave you a little bit confused as to how you should interact with aspartame and what all of this means. So I wanted to to give my takeaways. First of all, aspartame is not something that you have to ingest. It's not a primary macronutrient. It's not an essential vitamin or mineral. So I'm not sitting here and saying you have to have things with aspartame because I just don't think that there's any reason for me to say you need to. But at the same time, I think it's very important to recognize that there is no evidence that you need to stress about having foods that contain aspartame. I know many of the people that were most concerned about this information were diet soda drinkers, and they really enjoyed their diet soda and were concerned about if it was giving them cancer. And for those of you guys that are having that concern, I hope that this gives you the reassurance that there is not the evidence to support that there is any connection to cancer with you having your diet soda. There are only those concerns when the consumption starts to get into quite large amounts, such as over 9, 14 cans a day, 
basically, if you're outside of that recommendation of the 40 milligrams slash kilogram of body weight. I think as I always talk about when it comes to any type of food and when we discuss wellness, the level of stress that you're enduring has a more negative effect on your health than consuming those foods that you may be stressing about. And also, there are so many benefits to deriving joy from food. And so if your diet soda or your whatever else it may be that has aspartame in it brings you a ton of joy and works really well in your lifestyle and within how you feel, then don't let this be the thing that deters you from doing that. As always, extremes are not going to be ideal within the wellness world. We see that time and time again. And the best thing that you can do is tune into what makes you feel best. I am obviously someone that understands the nuances behind how diet soda and foods that are diety or maybe that have aspartame can be abused within challenges with food and within an eating disorder. So for a client that may be dealing with an eating disorder listening to this, don't take this as a recommendation to continue to avoid regular soda or to lean more into diet-based foods because that's not what's going to help you feel best if that decision is rooted in your disordered thoughts. For someone else that maybe feels that they just genuinely enjoy having a diet soda every now and again because it helps them to feel best and they're worried about the cancer-causing agents of it, then if that makes you feel best, recognize that you don't have to add in this research or this uh, claim or classification to your decision-making process. So there's so much more that we could discuss with this. There's a lot that could be said about diet-based foods and many diet-based foods that have aspartame and how we view diet-based foods and morality around foods. And I'm not going to be able to get into all of that in this episode because I want to make this just more succinct and just get to the point about these recommendations. But if you have any questions about this, please let me know. Slide into my DMs. Send a Um, or submit a request, there's a link in the show notes that will direct you to submit a podcast topic, but you can also just ask me anything in there. And I'm really appreciative of you listening. I do think, actually, before you go, I do think we can rate this on a diet culture scale of one to 10. And the way that I'm rating this is not rating aspartame. It's rating the classification of this by who and their release of this information. And I have to say that I feel like this is pretty high. I would say it's probably a 7 out of 10 diet culture, 10 being the highest, because it's so stereotypical diet culture of them using limited information to then go out there and make a claim and also not keeping in mind how that could affect the general public. So they just threw out this information 
with nothing else and it just caught the world by storm and is that not just so freaking typical diet culture I appreciate you guys. If you enjoyed this episode, I would so love if you left a rating or a review, if you shared it with someone. But regardless, I'm just thankful for you being here and I can't wait to see you guys again next week. Bye.